0: I haven't even done a sound check of my mic yet, so hey, it works, that's great. Uh, that was my fault, sorry, forgot to do that earlier. My name's Andrew, and glad that you are with us, I'm the senior pastor here. Um, you can be praying for me and Brian and Daniel Jordan, one of our elders, we're going right after the service to Birmingham, Alabama, for our denominations general assembly this week, so there's lots of business before us, um, so pray for us uh, in that time. Um, I guess I also should clarify that, because I heard James chuckle, James is not antisocial. so And I don't think Taylor meant that, because he knows James very well. Um, so James, I think, wanted that clarified as his laugh. I don't know. Um, but in any case, I'm going to just reiterate what Taylor said, is we're, we're looking for people to help serve in different ways, right? One of the things we want you to do is be involved in our Sunday uh, corporate worship together, to be involved in some kind of small group where you're connected with people and developing friendships and learning about how to follow Jesus in in faith um, and asking questions about faith. And we want you to serve in some capacity. Um, And one of those ways is to be in that video booth. And if you're like, you know, another way is you could be uh, on the welcome team um, and you could greet people as they're coming in the door. But if you're like, yeah, that's not my thing, but you could do the video booth, then that'd be awesome. We'd love to have you. Talk to Taylor about that. So happy Father's Day. Um, Today is not a Father's Day sermon per se, because we're in the middle of a series on ordering your life, but I will give this word of instruction and encouragement to fathers that relates to our sermon. Fathers, as you lead your families, it is critically important that kids, that your kids and other kids, see how much you love mom. How you elevate her, enable her to use all of her God-given talents and abilities fathers, you need to teach your sons how to affirm women in society and in the church. You should train your daughters to be confident, courageous, compassionate, and involved in the church. Does the Bible give us examples of this? It surely does. We spent the last two weeks kind of zoomed in on some texts that are kind of controversial and trying to understand those well in the book of Corinthians. Today, we're going to zoom out and kind of do a survey Of a lot of the pages of the Bible. I have infrequently, I'm afraid, shown how women have been used by God in Scripture and in the church. And we haven't done well at communicating that to you as a congregation, which has left many of you asking questions well, what can I do? Many of you, as women, asking questions what can I do? How can I be involved? And so part of the reason we've done these last couple weeks is trying to instruct and shape that, to encourage you to use your gifts. And so today, we are going to appreciate the significance of women as we survey the Bible, seeing some ways that women were used by God, and seeing how we utilize women here at Spring Run. So um, let me pray, and we'll get into this. Lord, I pray that you will be with us today. Give us insight. Give us wisdom. Give us courage, give us conviction, to see where your word leads, and then to apply it to our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start by looking at a survey of women in the Bible who are used by God um, in God's kingdom, in ministry, in different ways. It's not going to be every case, because if you haven't noticed, this is a rather large book. We're not going through every single part of that. But it's sampling from different parts of time and different <clears throat> examples and roles in it. So first we're going to start with a, a young girl named Miriam. Miriam is a young girl, an older sister to her younger brother, and she saves his life. We see it in Exodus chapter 2. Let's put those verses on the screen. Her brother is this boy named Moses, who you may know because he's one who leads Israel, Right? So when Moses is born, the Egyptian pharaoh wants to kill all the Hebrew male babies because they're growing in population and it's population control plan so he can keep this enslaved group of people at a, at a manageable number. And so um, they're being killed. So his mom takes him, hides him in a basket and sticks him by the river. And it tells us in verse 4 that his sister stood at the distance to know what would be done to him. And down in verse 7 and 8, it says, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, because Pharaoh's daughter was down by the water, discovered the basket with the baby in it, Miriam standing by watching, and she goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, Moses' mom. So here's a girl, Miriam, who takes a big risk to save the life of her brother Moses. And of course it doesn't end there because Moses goes on as raised up by the Lord to lead um, the Hebrew people out of Egypt to rescue them. Uh, he leads them across the sea, right? And Pharaoh's army drowns and, and in pursuit of them as the water collapses on, on the army, but the people of God pass through on dry ground. Then the people of God on the other side respond with great shouts of praise, it tells us in Exodus chapter 15. And Moses begins to lead the people in a song, praising God. And then it tells us that Miriam, his sister, joins in. It says, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, Miriam's words are virtually the same as Moses' earlier in chapter 15. She's echoing his words. The purpose was the same, to lead people in praise to God, which they do. And Miriam is the one who leads this, uh, this part of worship here. And it's a powerful and formative experience for the people so that it's written down and recorded in Scripture. Right? And she's one of the ones leading it. I mean, that's a great example of... Miriam as a prophetess and leading God's people in that way alongside Moses. We could look at another example of a prophetess named Deborah. Deborah lives later. So the people are out of Egypt. They've come in and they've, they've settled into the land of Canaan that God had promised them. But it's before the monarchy. They're not really well established yet. There's regional rulers kind of trying to hold... Um, governance and keep enemies at bay those regional rulers were called judges and you can read about that in the book of judges so deborah is one of those leading or judging israel and we see this in judges 4 verses 4 and 5 now deborah prophetess the wife of lepidoth i guess i'm saying that correctly i don't know was judging israel at that time she used to sit under the palm of deborah between ramah and bethel in the hill country of ephraim and the people of israel came up to her for judgment so what is it telling us there about her? She, had, she gave spiritual counsel. She issued judgments with some legal authority. When God determined to then use the people of Israel to defeat the enemy Jabin and Sisera, he spoke through Deborah the prophetess to say, go to Barak and tell Barak to assemble a force of 10,000 soldiers and that I will then deliver Jabin and Sisera into his hands. And so she goes to Barak to tell him this, but Barak is a little bit scared and says, I don't know, God told you, not me, I'm not going unless you come with me. And she says, okay, I'll go with you. And so we see this in Judges 4, 9, where she says she's going to go with him. But notice what she says. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then she went with him to Kadesh, right? So she's saying the glory is going to go to a woman. And then what happens is the story goes like this. So the army goes and fights, okay? And the 10,000 go out. They, they win. But the commander of, of the other side um, of Sisera uh, flees. He gets away. And he flees and he's on the run and he comes to a tent of somebody who he knows to be one of his friend's allies, okay? So he goes into the tent, and the husband isn't there, but the wife is there. Her name's Jael. She wasn't so much an ally of the king as her husband was. And he says, you know, give me shelter. And she says, come on in. She gives him shelter. She gives him some milk to drink. She says, rest here. He lays down, and he falls asleep. And then verse 21 tells us what happens. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So, naturally, he died. Right? Here's the woman, the guy's head's on the ground, and she takes a tent peg and <laughs> drives his stake through his head into the ground. Because Barak wasn't leading, God said, then the glory for the victory will go to Jael, Or the prophetess, Hulda who guides King Josiah during his reign. Now, King Josiah, this is later in Israel's history, right? He's really young. His dad and his granddad were not good people. Uh, He takes the throne at eight years old, okay? So he's a boy king, doesn't really know what he's doing, leaning on his advisors. Um, He comes to realize that the temple had suffered decades of abuse and mistreatment. Um, And during this time, he, as he discovers this, he orders a restoration of the temple. It had been more than 55 years the temple being abused and not used correctly, the priest kind of not using it, and Manasseh, an evil king, um, offering pagan worship there. So he, Josiah orders, uh, 18 years into his reign, he orders the high priest to begin temple restorations. As the high priest Hilkiah does that, he discovers in the temple this book of the law. The book of the law would be the book that we think of as the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, it's, it means the, the second law. It's the law that was given and the Israelites would use to read. And so he discovers this, and he's like, wow. I mean, remember, for five, almost six decades, they haven't really done any of this reading. So this priest is probably, I mean, he's a high priest. Maybe he's old. Maybe he remembers it. Maybe he doesn't. But he discovers it, and he's like, this is important. I need to take this to the king. So he takes it to the king's secretary. The secretary of the king of Josiah comes to him, brings it to him and says, we found this book of the law. And Josiah says, well, what does it say? And so he opens it, the secretary does, and begins reading it to Josiah. And Josiah is convicted by saying, we don't do any of this that God instructs us to do. We've ignored this for decades. (coughs) No wonder we're in trouble. And so what Josiah does He says, Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people. For great is the Lord's anger because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. And they seek out a prophet. This is during the fifth year of the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah who wrote a book of the Bible. It's rather lengthy. Major prophet. But they don't, the high priest and the royal officials don't go seek Jeremiah they go to the prophetess, Huldah. Huh, why is that? We don't know, because it doesn't say precisely. But in, in any case, they go to Huldah, and we see in Second Kings 22, verses 14 and 15, this is what happens. So Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbar and Shafan and Asiah went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. And then she gives the instruction. So God uses her to speak to the, to the high priest and to the kings of Israel, or the king of Israel at the time. So there's three prophetesses right there in that sampling of Scripture. But we go on. We can talk about one who was a queen in Persia. She was taken because she was beautiful and made to become queen of a Persian king. There's a book written about her, too, in the Bible. It's called Esther. Esther is a Jew, her people. So, this is during, so when she's taken, this is um, about, let's say, it's 400 years before Christ, roughly. Um, and so she's, during this time, the Jews are in captivity, They've been taken out of Israel. They've been conquered by foreign kings and armies. That's why she's taken to be the queen for a Persian king. There's some people in the administration of this Persian ruler who really do not like her cousin. They don't know that he is her cousin. And they make plans to have him killed. They begin constructing gallows for a hanging of the Jews because they find them so reprehensible. And Mordecai pleads with Esther to go before the king and plead for their lives. In verse 16 of chapter 4, the book of Esther, it says this. This is Esther's response to Mordecai's request. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So the verses that I did not read to you instruct us that the law of the king was you could not go into the court of the king to meet with him unless you were invited. And if you did, it was punishable by death. And so she's saying, I will go uninvited. And if I perish... I perish. So she risks her life for her cousin and her people, and the king is persuaded, and he saves them, and then has the other people who are trying to have them killed hung on those gallows. Or there's Rahab. Now we're going back in history, way back, but Rahab was a, was, um, a prostitute in the city of Jericho when the spies are going into the land to take it. And they go in, they're spying out the city of Jericho to see what it's like, and they need a place to hold up right and not be discovered so they go to the prostitute's house and that's where Rahab is and so they meet Rahab there and that she knows they're spies and she's like I've heard what your God has done and I want to be one of you because I know you're going to win and we're going to lose so I'm converting and she says please promise to me swear to me that when you conquer the city you will protect me and my family and they agree and say okay You'll hang this cord out the window and we will protect you. And Joshua 6.25 shows us um, what happens with Rahab and her family. Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Right? Not just we protected you and now here's some money Go on your way. Welcomed in because of her faith. Well, how do we know that she had such faith? Well because I don't know about 1400 years after that the person who writes the book of Hebrews says by faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies was not killed with those who were disobedient. He writes that in the first century when Christians are being killed as a way to encourage them to say look at the faith of this woman. Your faith should be like this woman. Trust God because she was not killed. Or Well, the other thing we should mention about Rahab, I guess, I don't have a verse to show you this, but you could look it up. It's either at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel or Luke's. Both of them had genealogies, and I can't remember which one has it. But Rahab is mentioned in the lineage of Christ. So through her descendants come Jesus. So Jesus, what about Jesus? How did Jesus treat and view women? Jesus chose 12 male apostles, we know that. Yet women had vital roles in the life and ministry of Jesus. He refused to allow the traditions of men to restrain his ministry to and with women. For example, there were wealthy women, Luke 8, verses 1 to 3 tells us, wealthy women who not only supported his ministry, but accompanied him. He traveled about from town and village proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God with the 12 who were with him. Those would be the 12 men who were the apostles, plus also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. They were vital to the ministry of Jesus, traveling around in teaching and preaching. The, women at, the woman at the well in John 4 testifies to the townspeople about how Jesus knew everything she had done, but was kind and good. That's why she's excited and goes and tells them. Or, In Luke 10, 39 to 42, with Mary and Martha there, she had a sister, this is uh, Martha, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me with all the work to do by myself? Now tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What, what is Jesus saying there? He's not denigrating the service in the home of preparing meals or whatever. He's not saying that's bad, but he is prioritizing a role of a disciple and a learner of Jesus is important. No matter what you're doing, to learn from Jesus is critical. Or would go on and faithful women remained with him as we read earlier in, in the confession and assurance at his crucifixion in John 19, 25. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection in John 20, verse 18. They go forth from there and Jesus, they carry instructions to the disciples after Jesus' resurrection. He says, tell them to meet me here. And they go and take the message and say, did we saw Jesus. And they're, and they're like, no, really, we did. And they're like, yes, we did. And he said this, go meet him here. And they go and they see Jesus. Or we can go on right into those who helped after Jesus' ascension into heaven, who helped the movement of churches being started in this apostolic age. Paul in Romans chapter 16 has a laundry list of all kinds of people who have helped him that he's giving thanks for. In verse 1 and 2, he mentions Phoebe, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. This verse is uh, one that's hard to translate, and churches have differed over it um, through the years and centuries, actually, because it commends Phoebe as a deacon or a servant. The the Greek word is diakonos, and it means servant, and sometimes there's an official role attached to that as, as an official deacon. And so um, it can mean either. And so you kind of have to interpret what's going on in the context. But regardless of the phrase, whether it means servant or deacon, here in, in verse 1 of chapter 16, what is clear is that Phoebe had a recognized role in her congregation from Centria. They recognized her in an official capacity of some kind. And Paul clearly urges the Romans to receive Phoebe with honor because she helped him as a benefactor in many ways. In Romans 16, verse 3, Paul goes on and he says, he commends Priscilla and Aquila, his co-workers. They were a husband and wife team who labored with Paul over the years. They were able to do so because their trade was tent makers and they would travel around from place to place making tents as their vocational calling, but then assisting Paul in starting new churches. We're told in Romans 16 and in 1 Corinthians 16 that they Hosted churches in their house in Rome and in Corinth. And in Acts 18, they helped Paul in Ephesus. And we see this Acts 18, 24 to 26. When Paul's in Ephesus, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, so from Egypt, comes to Ephesus. He was a learned man, thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, isn't that interesting? Because here's somebody who's a very gifted preacher and teacher coming around instructing people. But they, having traveled with Paul, notice that in his teaching he's erring in some way. It's incomplete, it's insufficient. And Priscilla is mentioned first. Scholars aren't positive why that is, but it's, it's placing an emphasis on her rather than Aquila, her husband. And it could be because of her higher social status or maybe her more primary role in instructing Apollos. We're not sure, but in any case, Paul says that Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila are my fellow workers, vital to the ministry. And in Romans sixteen six. Paul goes on, he commended Mary, who worked very hard. And in verse 12, he commends others, three more, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, who also worked hard in the Lord. Right? He's commending all of these women for what they're doing in aiding him in planting churches. Further on, he mentions, or in verse 7, he mentions Andronicus and Junius. Junius is probably his wife. Definitely a female, and says they were in prison with him. They helped him so much that they were in prison with him. And he calls them prominent, outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Paul's saying they knew Jesus before I got converted. They're outstanding among the apostles or with the apostles. What Paul is saying is here is he's using the word apostle not in the sense of like the 12 who became apostles but in the more common usage of apostle as being a sent one. Like he would call Barnabas an apostle sent on a mission. And so they are apostles sent on a mission for a particular purpose. And he honors them for the faithful discharge of their vital tasks. I mean, so there we just took 20 minutes to walk through a lot of Scripture seeing all, not all the different ways, but a lot of different ways in which women are invaluable assets to the work of God in society and in the church. In the previous two weeks, last week and the week before here as I was preaching, we saw that women do not serve as priests or elders, right? And we noted that, like, okay, there is a restriction there. But today we're seeing how the Scripture affirms women in so many ways. And has for thousands of years, they've served God's kingdom and his church as judges, prophetesses, worship leaders, spies, co-laborers alongside church planters. So all that is significant. I guess I'll say a word to men again on this Father's Day. Men, do not demean women in the way that you speak to them or about them when they're not around, right? Don't joke about it. Make jokes. It doesn't help for affirming women's roles that God has affirmed. Instead, speak words of encouragement to women, just like you will to your daughters. Raise strong daughters. Raise strong sons who respect women. Learn from them and partner with them in life and in ministry. If you're in a position of authority don't speak down as, uh, to a woman as if she were inferior simply because you have a position of authority. Speak to her as one you respect, right? That, those would be the things we would learn from the way that women are used and how Paul affirms them and speaks highly of them. But often in society, women are not treated that way. As we kind of conclude and focus in here on, well, what does that mean for us? What does it look like then for women serving and using their gifts here at Spring Run or in our denomination? Again, I'm going to run through a quick highlight of things here. Women such as Kathy Keller, Courtney Doctor, or Melissa Kruger, who are wives of PCA pastors and leaders who have written extensively and taught extensively at conferences and seminars, Dr. Diane Langberg is a psychiatrist and a member of a PCA church and an expert on abuse and power dynamics. She is leading a seminar here in Richmond on October 1st, Saturday morning, called Church as a Refuge Seminar. We are one of the sponsors of it along with several other Presbyterian churches. It will be hosted at Stony Point Church in Air. I'd encourage you to go to that or at least look, up, look it up and see about it. We've got... Women like Beth Detweiler and Julie Fletcher and Grace Stapleton and Lori Dalton and P.D. Mayfield and Alan Lee. Those two are men, but all who worked at Wellspring Counseling. All counselors who are working with others to teach give spiritual guidance to men and women that shapes their lives. We've had women like Michelle, Sue, Kimra, Kate, Carol, Kathy, Katie, Marcy, and probably more than I'm missing who have led our women's ministry and done fantastic jobs at it. We have missionaries that we have sent and or supported. Lindsay Kozlowski went to Thailand, Molly Fletcher in Ireland right now, Christy Herbst Peary in Malawi, Lisa Adams in Hungary, and Betsy Dowling all the way to Amelia with young life. Plus husband and wife teams we've supported. Katie McCloy is the chairman of our missions committee. Joy Roberts and Doris Paul. Uh, Joy was on staff. Doris has taken her position as financial administrator and both have been very capable. Martha is the office administrator and she's the grease that keeps everything working. I mean, she welcomes you when you come in. She makes things get, makes sure people get connected and all the different moving parts keep working well. All very capable women. Mariah Reefer leads one of the worship teams. There's about four different, three or four different leaders and she's one of them. Women lead us in the call to worship and confessing our sins. Many women, many of you are gifted to teach Sunday school, both to children and to adults. And so what are practical ways? If you're a woman thinking, "Uh, I don't know, I'm one of those that I've always wondered, how do I use my gifts at Spring Run? What are some practical ways you can do that? Well, in the worship service, you can lead music, including selecting songs and reading scripture. You can um, read the call to worship like was done today or the confession of sin or the assurance of forgiveness. You can be at, use it, speaking at a gospel story where you're prophesying a word of encouragement that harkens back to, if you didn't listen to last week, I was talking about prophecy the last two weeks where prophesying a word of encouragement. Be praying for the church, leading us in prayer. Outside of Sunday morning rolls, delegated teaching authority for things like adult Sunday school, Leading seminars or conference, um, conferences. Small group leadership. Children's ministry. You can lead shepherding and caring for people. Meeting with people who are in crisis, whether that's a relational crisis, a faith crisis, or some other circumstantial crisis. You can partner with and work for ministries that we support in the city like Real Life that Dr. Sarah Scarborough leads. She's always looking for people who are volunteers to help Jobs for life. You can, many ways you can use your gifts. Ministry team leaders. You can be a ministry team leader over a ministry. Serve on a committee. Women serve on all of our committees from personnel to finance to missions to church plan initiatives team and to staff searches. When we search for staff and hire them and we put together a search team, it always includes women. Deacon assistants. You can serve as deacon assistants in the church. That's our way of trying to affirm what Romans 16 was talking about with Phoebe. And so we plan to do a training this fall. If you're interested in that, please let me know. Staff. Other than pastors, Brian and I as, as, as pastors, as teaching elders, staff positions are open to women. So even Jake, maybe we'll book Jake's a man. When we searched for that, it was open to men or women. We searched for that position for the, the director of, uh, of college youth ministries Um, and Jake was the the one that we found best, and Jake was exploring like, okay, what's it like to be in ministry, and has since been kind of affirmed in that he feels called to ministry, and so he's taking seminary classes, and that's why you're seeing him preach some, because that's part of his training to go on that track to ordination eventually. And so that that makes him unique in that way. Now, why am I going through all this in, in such detail? Because I think in the past, we have not been clear on these issues, and we're trying to be clear so that you know. If we don't clarify and help women use their gifts, then what we as leaders may think is that we assent to something in theory without attending to it in our practice, right? And that's something we never want to do. We don't want to attend to something in theory. Oh, Jesus is is the one, is the Lord and, and Savior, and he's the one I should follow, but then in practice not do that. Yeah, but I'm going to go do this, right? We don't want to divorce our beliefs from our behavior. And so we're saying, look, we need to make sure that we are affirming women in this way. Women, if you have talents that you want to use, please talk with us. Talk with me. Talk with Brian. Talk with one of the elders. Talk with the ministry team leader. But please do talk to us. In all of this, which I think is important for us to discuss, we should remember that the focus is never meant to be on any one of us. It's not meant to be on me as the senior pastor or the primary preacher. The focus is not meant to be on elders or deacons. The focus isn't even meant to be on women. Even though women have great gifts for ministry, right? All of this talk about using our gifts, remember what it was for last week was to build up the church in the previous work so that in everything we do it glorifies God. So the focus is actually so that we use our gifts to point everybody to Jesus. We're going to sing a song here in a minute. That Taylor chose for us called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It was written by Helen Haworth Lemmel in 1922. She was inspired by a short story entitled Focused that was written by a British missionary to Algeria named Isabella Lilius Trotter. In her short story, she was trying to get people to focus on God amidst all of life's distractions. And if you read it, it actually sounds similar to today. I'm like, whoa, we have those same kinds of distractions. I mean, a little different technology, but same stuff. And in the midst of those distractions that vie for our attention and our allegiance, she wrote this in her short story. How do we bring things to a focus in the world of optics? Not by looking to things to be dropped, but by looking at the one point that is to be brought out. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look, and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. And the divine trait by which God's saints are made, even in the 20th century, will lay hold of you. For he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he has died to win. And hearing those words, reading those words, words. Helen Lemmel, penned the hymn, turn your eyes toward Jesus. Can we do that together? As men and women in the church, can we turn our eyes to Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be people who are focused on you, that we would indeed turn our eyes to you that we will do very well in affirming the gifts of both men and women in our congregation and using them for the building up and edifying of one another and for your glory. Would you help us to be people who tell the stories of your goodness, your sovereignty, your righteousness, your kindness to us. Would you help our eyes to focus on you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.